With this Sabbath, we will begin a new series on Chapter 79 of The Desire of Ages. It's entitled, It is Finished. This chapter has long puzzled me. Parts of it, especially the beginning and the ending, were very clear, and I used those parts a lot. But in the middle, I found myself unclear as to what was really meant. So a few years ago, when I was reading through The Desire of Ages and came to Chapter 79, I decided I would go only as fast as I could understand each line. I would not change paragraphs until I understood the paragraph I had just read, and I would take notes. Those notes became the basis of a commentary on the chapter I have revised several times. We will begin with the first paragraph of that chapter on page 758 of Desire of Ages. For those listening to the Sabbath School online, the document is posted with this series. Please download it so that you can follow along as we read. Let's begin. Okay. Can I let you read first? Okay. Christ did not yield up his life till he had accomplished the work which he came to do. And with his parting breath he exclaimed, It is finished. John 19.30 The battle had been won. His right hand and his holy arm had gotten him the victory. As a conqueror, he planted his banner on eternal heights. Was there not joy among the angels? All heaven triumphed in the Savior's victory. Satan was defeated and knew that his kingdom was lost. Only in the light of the great controversy between God and Satan can Jesus' death be fully understood. Origen taught the death of Christ within this framework. Even the early ransom theory was cast within a context of conflict between God and Satan. To the extent that later theologians such as Tertullian and Anselm shifted toward a more legal view, they eclipsed the great controversy motif. With the transition to an entirely legal model, Luther and Calvin virtually abandoned the notion of a conflict between God and Satan as the central to the plan of salvation. In their view, Satan became God's agent of wrath to punish the impenitent. Therefore, Ellen White received visions specifically about this conflict in order to shift the atonement back and place it once again within that setting. Okay, are there any comments or questions? So you're saying that Ellen White directly received these visions in order to cast more light on this? No. I did, I did a history of the Great Controversy when I was in uh, my master's program. And what I determined is that because Tertullian and Augustine went the legal route, and that was picked up later by uh, uh, Anselm of Canterbury, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, who developed the satisfaction theory of the atonement, uh, that you had this great legal shift, and then the reformers, in their effort to break salvation, uh, to break the notion that salvation lay in the church, they went the full legal route, which they, that became the forensic model of the atonement, that is the most popular view in, in evangelical circles, and what happened to the great controversy is that it got basically buried except for poets english poets italian poets who who talked about it in their poetry and of course so you have Mil, uh, milton's paradise lost and and ellen white was familiar with that work 
So you have it lingering on in the poets. And then it is Ellen White's visions, which she had twice. She had a series of great controversy visions twice. Uh, and once in 1848 and then again, no, 1850, 1846 and then again in 1856. And um, she didn't, she wrote them a little bit in 1846 and on, but when she got them again in 1856, she began to write more and more, and, and that became kind of the running thread. And I believe, I really believe that Seventh-day Adventist Church was raised in part to hold a great controversy view to to revitalize that in the world because it it is a view that makes the most sense to understanding the problem of evil understanding the problem of suffering and actually none of our teachings make any sense apart from it and the problem has been that we have separated it from them because we the church has adopted a legal view of everything and and so that's why I'm so hold on uh, perhaps now would be a good time to review those different models of the atonement. Yes, yes good. Well, the different models, the, the earliest model for atonement was the ransom theory. And the ransom theory is about the devil. It has to do with, it centers around the devil. The devil tricked us into the fall, and Jesus came to ransom us. So he had us captive. And Jesus came to ransom us from him. And so Jesus died to give him the ransom. Jesus' death was the ransom. And to make the payment. You know, in a ransom, you, you have to make a payment to get somebody back. And, and so Jesus died to pay that ransom. But he tricked the devil. <laughs> it's kind of the way it works. Uh, you know, that's, that's really the current view of the ransom theory, not how they viewed it. But anyway, he, by dying, he he paid the ransom, but Satan could not contain him, and he rose again, and so Satan lost us, he lost him, and so on. That's the ransom theory. That was held by, pretty much by the early fathers, the patristic fathers, what we call the patristic fathers, until the, the coming of Tertullian. And even, even in Tertullian, Tertullian and um, Augustine, if the ransom theory still survived. But what happens with Tertullian, uh, Tertullian was a Latin-trained lawyer, and he brought with him a lot of the legal things, and he implanted those into Christianity. And, and then when Augustine, who was also trained at Latin law, came into the scene, he, he completely developed in a, in a legal sense, not necessarily the atonement, but Christianity, and kind of gave a... a a legal cast to it and then you do a quantum leap into the 13th century I believe it was 12th or 13th century I guess it was 12th century um, I'm forgetting my dates here and you have the rise of Anselm and Anselm writes the work Cur Deus Homo uh, when God became man and in that work, he established the satisfaction theory, which was built on feudalism. You know, in Anselm's day, you have feudalism. You have feudal lords and people, who, the poor people can't really own property. They have to subsist under the feudal lords who are usually oppressive. Well, God is the feudal lord, and, and 
everything depends on his keeping his honor and so Jesus died to keep the honor of God and pay satisfaction to justice because of sin sin robbed God of his honor and Jesus died to pay satisfaction to his justice and that then then the the reformers established more that Jesus uh, died to make legal reparation to the law they they shifted a little bit instead of making satisfaction to God directly Jesus died to satisfy the claims of the law the justice of the law uh, and that became basically the basis of the modern forensic model of atonement which has variations if you depending on who you read John Stott's probably it was John Stott's work the cross of Christ is probably the most prevailing view on on atonement and in his view God satisfied his wrath or his justice in him in his son and so God makes this payment to himself kind of it's kind of circular reasoning <laughs> I don't quite understand it but but that's how he sees it and uh, he so he sees that God's wrath or his justice is satisfied um, by the death of Jesus it's it's a little closer actually to Anselm I think than the reformers themselves went so those those are the prevailing theories that have, have existed throughout time and then the, there rose a reaction early on to Anselm in the form of Abelard Peter Abelard uh, was a scholastic and he believed that Anselm's atonement theory was did not do justice to the love of God and so he believed that Jesus died to demonstrate the, or to show the love of God and he wrote on it and unfortunately Peter Abelard met with uh, several faiths uh, he fell in love with a woman Heloise was her name and he had sex with her apparently and got her pregnant or something happened anyway he had sex with her and her father found out and went in the dark of night into Peter Abelard's room and castrated him and um, Peter broke off the relationship. I don't know whether this was pressure from the father or whether he chose to do this, but anyway, she ended up in a convent uh, as a nun, and he, that was the end of their relationship. As a result of his writings, he got called, I believe, to Rome. And they took his precious document which he had only one copy of in those days you know it was arduous work to copy things and he they took that one document and they they sliced it off into the fire and burned it destroyed it and he was so heartbroken at the way they treated it and the way they treated him that he didn't live long after that you had re, we had revivals of his view sometime after the Reformation in America there were theologians who rose who believed that Jesus died to show the love of God that has been declared greatly a weak and truncated gospel 
and and in some ways rightly so it's not large enough big enough to encompass all the ramifications of the problem of sin and why Jesus had to die it it, it sounds like Jesus went, took you know like like I took you down to Goat Rock, for example, and I got on Goat Rock, and I said, "Now I'm going to jump in headfirst to show you how much I love you." You know, it, it sort of doesn't make sense, you see. And whereas the forensic model within the legal framework, if you think legally, it makes sense. It doesn't make sense if you don't think legally. So that's an overview. Of the, the different models of atonement. Any any questions? So ransom, satisfaction, forensic. Yeah. Okay. And my my contention is that this chapter really discusses what she considers to be the real model of atonement, and she places it squarely within the Great Controversy, which which for her given the issues in the Great Controversy, and, and everything depends. I mean, you can have a Great Controversy view that is totally legal, but everything depends on how you view the Great Controversy and what the issues are. To the angels and the unfallen worlds, the cry, it is finished, had deep significance. It was for them as well as for us that the great work of redemption had been accomplished. They with us shared the fruits of Christ's victory. Ellen White will return to this theme once again at the end of this chapter. This is thus the framework for her explanation of why Jesus had to die. The whole universe is involved. Something far greater than merely the salvation of human beings was at stake in Jesus' death. If the angels and other unfallen beings share with us the fruits of Christ's victory, then their eternal security is at stake. To this very belief she will come. Okay, any questions? Observations? Okay, there doesn't have to be. Let's move on. Not until the death of Christ was the character of Satan clearly revealed to the angels or to the fallen, unfallen worlds. The archipostate had so clothed himself with deception that even holy beings had not understood his principles. They had not clearly seen the nature of his rebellion. Uh, God works through revelation of the truth and not through mere compliance. Everything depends on the universe seeing clearly the nature of Satan's principles and the nature of God's principles in contrast to each other. The angels and other unfallen beings no doubt had questions. They had a hard time seeing what the problem was with Satan's agenda and plans. They did not understand his principles. What were those principles? And just what was the nature of his rebellion? Okay, say that again. <laughs> <laughs> this, um, these themes... When we look at the great controversy in Ellen White's vision of it, we see it more in a, from a universal standpoint than just here on earth. And um, it's not just us on trial, it's also God on trial. And this really changes our concept of a plan of redemption. Yeah. Uh, what this does is suggest something very different is going on. In, in a legal construct, how could God, being superior to us and being powerful, be on trial? Who could take God to court? Who could put him on trial? In a legal construct, it seems like God is, is bigger than that and, and couldn't be touched. Unless he isn't a legal God and he runs the universe 
on exactly the kinds of, of plan that allows people to question him. Kind of like in Job? Yeah, well, like in Job. Where anybody in the whole universe can come into court, whether they belong there or not, and say, I don't like what you're doing. And I object. And I think we need to keep this in mind. This is Ellen White's, the, the background of her statements about God, is that she sees him as having an open court kind of system where anybody can raise questions, anyone can disagree, uh, and so on. It was a being of wonderful power and glory that had set himself God. Of Lucifer the Lord says, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Ezekiel 28:12. Lucifer had been the covering cherub. He had stood in the light of God's presence. He had been the light, the highest of all created beings, and had been foremost in revealing God's purpose to the universe. After he had sinned, his power to deceive was the more deceptive, and his unveiling of his character was the most difficult because of the exalted position he had held with his father. God was dealing with his most brilliant created being, whose role had been to reveal God more than and above all other beings. If angels were still on the basic level of worshiping God because of his power and authority, not fully understanding what the basis of that power and authority was, it would be extremely difficult for them to see through the deceptions of Satan. Okay. Any questions, comments? Well, this whole idea of worship and God's government, you know, what is it based on? Yeah. Uh, I was just reading in in Desire of Ages last night her comment about love cannot be commanded, and then she goes on to say it cannot be won through force or authority. And you think of how much we tend to use authority. You know, you obey because he has the authority. We make the rules and you have to obey if you want to be at this college. <laughs> that that kind of thinking is, is just not the way love works and it's not the way God works. What are the motives here? Yeah, it has to do with motives. But it is possible the angels... Their first contact with God, their impressions were more about his power than his character. Because God is an, a majestic person. He is full of power. He is full of glory. And it would be very easy for his created beings to, to kind of start on the level of power and, and have to be taught the higher levels of uh, God's authority. Um, she's going to come uh, very soon to a statement about the nature of God's authority and what it's based on. Okay. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one can cast a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness mercy and love and the presentation of these principles is the means to be used and I have to pause here to say note that she says the presentation not the enforcement 
The presentation of these principles is the means to be used. That means that God presents his case. He presents the truth about himself. He presents himself. And we're totally free whether or not we accept that. So she ends, God's government is moral and truth and love are to be the prevailing power. Do you think the angels, like, at first, when they were first created, do you think they just worship God because he's, he's their creator? That's kind of what I see. I see the, the angels actually increasing in power, I mean, increasing in knowledge and understanding as time goes on. That they start out on, on a pretty basic level of, of God is our creator, He's he's the one who gave us life. Therefore, we owe everything to him. This is this is kind of if you know about my spiel on Kohlberg's stages of moral development. Um, this is kind of the stages one and two uh, level. Because and the reason I say this is because she pictures in in Desire of Ages the angels actually kind of standing at the gates of heaven uh, with thunderbolts in their hands, just waiting for God to say the word, and they would just destroy the world and at that very moment Jesus comes as a helpless baby and they're like what what is God doing Uh, because they're ready to destroy the world it's over for them Uh, if they weren't on that level maybe by this time they're on the law and order level you know you disobey me and you're out but if they weren't on that level then I think they wouldn't have had that response. So I, I think the whole universe has had to learn in this process. One of the phrases that just jumps out at me here is that first sentence from Ellen White here, if God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one can cast a pebble. And I remember from the first time we were going over this, we talked about, so what is the easiest way to cast a pebble? Just dropping it. No force is needed, just gravity. Uh, and just looking at like how that is how easy it could have been done, but it wasn't done that way. Yes, and that raises a huge issue about what is force. If force is simply letting something go, which is dropping the pebble, what is force? Because we think, those of us who have accepted a different view of the atonement and the death of the wicked... We tend to think that that's what God does in the death of the wicked. He lets them go. And we don't see him as using force. So what is force here? If if force is allowing Satan to receive the consequences, well, she's going to come to answer that at the end. I hate to tell you, it's at the end of the chapter. It's going to be on page, <laughs> what, 22 or something that we come to it. Uh, she's going to answer that. Maybe just to give you a little insight. She comes to the conclusion that if God had done that in the beginning, the angels would not have been clear that he hadn't killed them actively. And if it isn't clear, it's still using force. So that that means force is becoming huge now. Um, and and that means that everything in in this chapter is trying to set forth the principles of God's government as opposed to the principles of Satan's government, which Satan's government is force. And I would like to oppose to you, and this is early, but but I keep this in mind. Uh, my thesis here, as I do this commentary, 
is that the legal uh, legal construct is a force construct. The thing that makes law work is the use of force. Destroying someone who is evil or who invents evil is to use force. When we portray God as ultimately destroying those who reject his mercy, we are ascribing Satan's principles. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. When God wiped out people in the flood and burned up Sodom and Gomorrah, he did so to preserve those who remained from wholesale destruction, not to drive people by force into serving him. Indeed, one of the effects of God's use of these measures was the revelation that they did not bring loyalty and love in the long run. The use of such methods for the purpose of gaining converts is therefore ultimately doomed. All false religion wants to coerce the consciousness and, and use force. You know, look at this thing we've got going on with Islam and Christianity and all these are guilty of doing it through the ages. You know, it's totally against God's principles here. Well said. The basis of God's authority is goodness, mercy, and love. Note, she leaves out justice. God's authority is not based on his sovereign right, nor his power. The only method, means, to be used to gain allegiance to God's authority is the presentation of these principles, not their enforcement. Therefore, God's government is not built upon power, but upon moral principles of love. Any comments before we move on? By contrast, Satan's principles are compelling power, found in his government alone. So the angels did not understand this, that Satan's principles were those of force. Principles corollary to to force include pride, selfishness, self-preservation, externalism, desire to control others, deception, compulsion, arbitrariness, unreasoning, unthinking obedience, equals legal compliance. Command response based on power, claims without evidence, power-based authority, detestation, taunt, murder, and open rebellion. Any comments or questions? Yeah, I didn't list them all, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) I gave up. (laughs) When... When do you think we're going to get the arbitrary talk? We we went over the, that arbitrary lesson, didn't we? And and maybe we should put it again on on tape uh, or on re- on record. Yeah, I I'm more and more coming to be convinced that the heart of the legal model is arbitrary, being arbitrary, as opposed to natural, and as opposed to reasoning. Uh, those those two things and those two things go together where you have what works where you have descriptive law you have the ability to reason about it seems like the more I think about this how can you not want to serve somebody from that has this you know it just automatically gives you love and respect you know when you see this and it's because we mix the two we make it all the more confusing for people, I'm not talking about us here, but but really, in in Christianity in general, we don't we mix the love of God with legal things to the point where we confuse, we give mixed messages all the time, and and so people are like, yeah, God's loving, but it was God's purpose to place things on an eternal basis of security, 
and in the councils of heaven it was decided the time must be given for Satan to develop the principles which were at the foundation of his system of government. He had claimed that these were superior to God's principles. Time was given for the working of Satan's principles that they might be seen by the heavenly universe. God's solution to the great controversy was not to punish evildoers or to instantly destroy them. Time, development, demonstration, evidence, all are components of God's government based on truth and love. Elsewhere, Ellen White writes, The discord which his own course had caused in heaven, Satan charged upon the law and government of God. All evil he declared to be the result of the divine administration. He claimed that it was his own object to improve upon the statutes of Jehovah. Therefore it was necessary that he should demonstrate the nature of his claims and show the working out of his proposed changes in the divine law. His own work must condemn him. Satan had claimed from the first that he was not in rebellion. The whole universe must see the deceiver unmasked. Okay, any questions or observations, comments? You notice here that she uses Jehovah's statutes, making it sound terribly legal. Mm-hmm. And and she does that in, in many places. And, and of course, Ellen White progresses along these lines as she grows older. And, and consequently, this chapter is written after that statement. She does not have the language and the uh, semantic structures that we have today to be able to express this. She didn't have a background that we have today where we are steeped in natural law, we are steeped in, in science, and we have come to value a more scientific way of looking at things. So g- given all of that, it it seems to me that we have to interpret her by herself. And the statutes of Jehovah really are the descriptive law. They may be, in the Old Testament, they may have been worded in legal talk, in in legal constructs. Uh, the form is legal, but if you get behind them, be, what behind what is behind them is more descriptive law. Okay. When, it, when she says uh, the whole... Universe must see the deceiver unmasked. Would that imply that the whole universe is being deceived by Satan? That's a very good question. To what extent did were the angels and other beings influenced by Satan? I think the very fact that they wanted to destroy the earth so shows that they were influenced to him a lot. A lot, and the reason they were loyal angels is because they had chosen to stay with God, even though they didn't uh, understand everything, and they had their questions, and they had their uncertainties perhaps uh, about what God was like you said you think they wanted to destroy the earth because they were deceived by Satan yeah I think they had thought that maybe God's government was like this obey me or I'll kill you and so they were ready to destroy the earth and of course what makes this so difficult is even if you watch someone die, you can't always know what is killing them, right? So everything that happens in the Old Testament, all those times when God intervenes, it's very hard to tell what exactly is happening. And our perceptions can deceive us. 
they they may not be accurate because of what we bring to them. Until Jesus dies, things are not clear. It, it seems to me. The fact that God decided that Satan's own work must condemn him reinforces the fact that God's government is moral and truth and love are to be the prevailing power and that his method is presentation of evidence, not the enforcement of his principles. <clears throat> this paragraph means that we could and should study history as the outworking of Satan's way of improving upon God's government and changing his law of love. We should look at the origins of his government as having begun with the rise of Sumerian babylonian ways of govern governance through kingly power and legal system and economics. When, when we may see how these work out in the uh, Medo-Persian, Hellenistic, and Roman empires, we may study them in the rise of Roman Christianity, the Crusades, the Inquisition, and in the conflicts between Lutherans and the Anabaptists, or between Calvinists and the other stepchildren step of the Reformation. We may then note how violence ends in the Mennonite tradition when it rejects legal atonement. Then we should follow Satan's principles as they are carried out in, other in the other extremes of atheism and rejection of God. Napoleon, the French Revolution, Hitler, communism, and many, many other nations of oppression. Central to it all is Jesus, the only fully innocent victim ever, hanging from a Roman cross while Satan and his followers seek to end his life, the life of Satan's own creator. So this thing about hierarchy and this insistence on hierarchy all the time is kind of a carnal thing. Oh, definitely. Hierarchy is part of the system of force. And we don't we don't realize how far reaching these two sets of principles are. We don't realize how many things that we assume and take for granted are really a part of the system of force. And what I would would suggest is that uh, if if we once see this as Satan's model, Satan Satan trying to say this is this is the way things ought to work, then our eyes are kind of opened to see things in a fully new light that we haven't seen before. Satan let men into sin, and the plan of redemption was put in operation. For 4,000 years, Christ was working for man's uplifting, and Satan for his ruin and degradation, and the heavenly universe beheld it all. Primarily, Satan accomplished his degradation of humanity through idolatry, false representations, and betrayals of God. But eventually... God's own people were cured of worshiping idols, coming instead to worship the law and turning God into a stern, forbidding king who was ready to punish any who broke any of their man-made rules. It was their preoccupation with an external, legal religion that led those of Christ's day to crucify him. Okay. Any questions or comments? I think because we've been over this before, probably um, we can... We're comparing uh, stories of Joseph and, like, through Islam and then the story of Joseph in the Bible. And I was wondering about Islam. Do they believe in a trinity? No. No. Yeah. No. They believe in monotheism right. to the nth. <laughs> yeah. I think that's one of uh, Islam's contention yeah, with is. Christianity is the fact that Christianity has this trinity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, thinking about it from a rational perspective saying that three equals one 
is illogical, and that's what Muslims point out. That that doesn't make sense. You can't say you're monotheist and have a trinity. Yeah, and I I've wrestled with that actually, and uh, I've come to conclude where the text in Deuteronomy that Jews use to proclaim we're monotheists and you are not, uh, because Jews have the same contention. That text is, uh, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. The name Yahweh refers to character, refers to the essence of God. Uh, we worship one kind of God. We don't necessarily worship one person. And that's how I've resolved it, that it refers to one kind of character. God is consistent with himself. He has only one kind of character, and that's love. And that's our monotheism. It's so funny to say that because, like, um, comparing the stories, and then, like, I really want to go to the source. I started looking at the Quran, and they're saying how, like, even some of the Jews were converted. And then you see, like, today, Muslims, even with all the, you know, stuff we have going on, contention stuff between the two, um, Christianity and everything, Muslims um, converted to Christianity. So it's very funny to see that. It's ironic, though, that if you say anything against Muhammad, it's like saying something against God. Well, and there are plenty of things you cannot do to say against God either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think the important thing to dis- to suggest here is that if if the Trinity is three people, if we have three people who are God, that means we do not have a dictator. Okay, when Jesus came into the world. Satan's power was turned against him. From the time when he appeared as a babe in Bethlehem, the usurper worked to bring about his destruction. In every possible way, he sought to prevent Jesus from developing a perfect childhood, a faultless manhood, a holy ministry, and an unblemished sacrifice. But he was defeated. He could not lead Jesus into sin. He could not discourage him or drive him from a work he had come on earth to do. From the desert to Calvary... The storm of Satan's wrath beat upon him, but the more mercilessly it fell, the more firmly did the Son of God cling to the hand of his Father and pressed on in the bloodstained path. All the efforts of Satan to oppress and overcome him only brought out a pure, in a pure light his spotless character. If Satan's principles are of force, then his goal must be to prove that force works to accomplish its end. That the only way one will comply perfectly with divine law is through externally applied pressure. Therefore, Jesus was exhibit A in the universe to determine whether or not Satan was right. Was there no perfect obedience apart from force? Even more importantly, could there be perfect obedience to God through internal assimilation of divine principles of love and mercy even while force was applied? Or would Satan be the only one to gain perfect obedience through force. Had Jesus failed and given in to Satan in the least, the entire great controversy would have ended, and Satan and his principles of force would have been supreme. Any questions or comments? I think one thing, who likes force? Who wants to be pressured into something? Isn't it more comfortable and desirable to follow a God that loves you and is not going to put pressure and force on you that putting pressure on you might hurt. If a rock is pressed onto your finger, it hurts. But God's not going to do that to you. You know, 
I think the question has to be raised if if that's true, and I I I agree with that wholeheartedly. But if that's true, why do so many people line up to force? I just over Christmas break, I had to go to a wedding, and I had a scenario in the back seat of my car where um, a person on the phone was trying to coerce someone in my car, and that person had great authority over this other person. And we talked about freedom, we talked about force, talked about all those things, but this person's direction of their life has been so coerced through from the time the person was born that it was very difficult to see beyond that. Conditioned. Yeah, conditioned is right. And and I think Satan has, to a degree, conditioned all of us to more than we realize to respond to his measures of force. In an even larger setting, this is a statement about the Incarnation. Everything was at risk here, for if Jesus surrendered to any of Satan's principles of force, if he tried to force himself to hold firm instead of merely trusting his Father, if he in any way acceded to arbitrary measures, Satan would have proven that God's character, laws, and government should, in reality, be built upon these principles and not on goodness, mercy, and love. The very nature of God himself was at risk in Jesus, for Satan would have proved that his principles were superior to God's. Instead, because Satan vented his worst on Jesus, and because Jesus was truly innocent and sinless, it became completely clear to the universe that force was very, very evil and heinous. Any closing comments or questions? We're going to have to stop there. Sometimes it gets a little frustrating when you think about Satan because, like, you know, we know he's bad or for whatever reason. But you wonder, like, did he ever take out the time to, to I guess, instead of, like, trying to rule or just really get to know God's character because we really don't know if he did know God's character or not. We don't know if he just assumed, oh, you know, God's just this guy that just puts his hand down and have to do whatever he says and I can't think for my own and do what I want to do. So sometimes you get frustrated. I always wonder that. That's the mystery of sin about pride and selfishness, and that, you know, and that's what started all this. Yeah. Ellen White makes it very clear in Patriarchs and Prophets that Satan knew God better than anybody else. He he was actually God's covering cherub, or, or he was his role was to make God known to the other angels. So he was as close to the epicenter of God's glory and goodness uh, of any being, and he chose to misrepresent God due to uh, this pride and I think his adoption of externalism. His and Let me explain what externalism is because some of you haven't heard me use that. Uh, externalism is letting what is outside of me control me instead of having an internal locus of control where I control myself and I control my environment. Not people, but the physical environment. I let other things and people control my life so that I'm externally driven Whatever, wherever the wind blows, my weather vane goes. <laughs> uh, it's, it's the way externalism works. Okay, we're going to stop here. Let's have a closing prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for leading us and for guiding us 
for making it so clear today that your kingdom is not a kingdom of force but a kingdom of love and truth and that your kingdom is built on freedom we pray that we may experience this in in a renewed way that will not only transform our lives but will help others who are still blinded by the measures of force that Satan uses through various means on this planet that they will be set free as well we thank you in Jesus name